What what a great time to do it then for episode 100, bring in you know several manufacturing leaders that we you know think are very smart people and are really progressive in, in what they're doing. They are and bring the yeah. greatest, the, the most um, challenging topic that we have right now in the manufacturing industry and try to get some insight from these great manufacturing leaders. If the sound of a machine tool removing metal gets your blood pumping, then you are Metal Working Nation. This is Making Chips, where we talk all things metalworking, engineering and design, production and tooling combined with business best practices, technology, marketing, news, and new media for manufacturing professionals. Here are your hosts, business owners, metalworking experts, and guys who get dirty on the factory floor, Jim Carr and Jason Zanger. Now, let's make some chips. Hello, Metalworking Nation. My name is Jason Zanger, and this is Making Chips, where we equip and inspire manufacturing leaders. And I'm here in our big studio with my good friend and co-host, Jim Carr. How you doing, Jim? Jason, I can't believe it. I know. 100. Episode 100. This is it. This is it. And by the way, we're at the Technology and Manufacturing Association. They were so kind to let us have a room today. We brought in a listening party behind us. Yeah, we're we all... have a bunch of people here, yeah. you know? We popped some bottles yes, and we're, we're getting started. We're drinking so we're, champagne already. We're getting we're getting the room warmed up and we're gonna go out and celebrate after this is all over. Yeah, one hundred episodes. Crazy. It's crazy. Well, congratulations to you, my yeah, friend. Yeah, you too. And um, it hasn't been you know it hasn't been hard, but it hasn't been easy no. at the end of the day. No. I, I think the biggest issue is time constraints with both running our businesses and trying to uh, get together to actually sit down and. Uh, Start talking. Yeah, yeah. And does so, mics. So I've got I've got kind of a funny story. Um, okay, here we go. So so we we just or you and Ryan just produced the first episode of Making Chips TV. We did. Which I mean it's great. I I think that was my idea, right? Like all oh, the good it's ideas. All, are. It's all it's always well he does Jason does come up with some good ideas, hence this podcast. But Exactly. And then you and Ryan just took the ball and you ran with it and you're like, yeah. Oh, we we did an episode. I'm like, Oh wow, that's awesome. That's great. Did it surprise you? No, it did surprise yeah. me. And it also surprised me how good it was. I mean, it was very well, well you. produced and you know, you got the you know, the beard thing going on. I mean, it was it was good. I liked yeah. it. It was good. And and my wife still wants me to shave it though. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> it is looking a little scruffy. It's not not very professional. It's pretty Jim. gray. Yeah. So anyway, so I I um I sent the uh, a text message to I think it was to my mom and I was like, "Hey, oh, check no. this out." And she was like, she she texted Don't me back me. all Don't concerned. Embarrass no, 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 no. It's not embarrassing to you. So she texted me back all concerned. She was like, "Did you and Jim break up?" She's like, <laughs> "Where are where are you?" <laughs> I was like, Did "Mom, you- just settle down." I was like, "Everything is fine. <laughs> Jim and I are still friends. You know, making chips is still everything is still fine. It's just, you know, we're doing the the video a little bit differently." So, yeah, I just absolutely. thought it, I thought it was kind of funny and uh yeah, so and she kept questioning me. She was like, is everything okay? And I'm like, yeah, mom, everything's fine. No worries. Good. So, I'm glad your mom gave us the A plus and the approval to uh, <laughs> yeah. to move forward. She didn't with say this. you look good, Jim. I, she I didn't? didn't? No, 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 no. I'm just saying she just asked if we broke up. Okay. And, you know, okay. But, but you did. But I mean, she said you know, it was we a very professional. Yeah, it was yeah. good. No, good. it was good. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Start taking, I'm you know, glad like, I got your mom's compliments approval. when you didn't get them. <laughs> I know. It's true. <laughs> Anyway, um, so tell tell the metalworking nation what this episode is all about, please. Yeah, so 
the idea was to have a roundtable discussion, which is something that we've been, you know, batting back and forth for a while. Yep. And, you know, I just thought, what what a great time to do it then for episode 100, bring in, you know, several manufacturing leaders that we, um, you know, think are very smart people and are really progressive in, in what they're doing. They are. And bring we, the yeah. greatest, the, the most um, challenging topic that we have right now in the manufacturing industry and try to get some insight from these great manufacturing leaders. So um, what we're talking about today is workforce development, training, oh, and hiring. You know, it's, a it's big a hot, pain point. Yeah. I mean, oh, all, these people can speak to that. I mean, we know we're around the manufacturing people all day long, our peers. They are crying about the workforce development. It's a big, big, big problem. I've even heard it talked about as it's a crisis. It's in crisis mode. And what are we going to do to make it better? So I think today's conversation will hopefully equip and inspire the manufacturing leaders around the country, the world for that matter. And maybe we can give them just one or two tips that can help them and enable them to find good quality, skilled people for their shops. Yeah, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of great ideas here. And if somebody can grab just, you know, like you said, one or two great ideas, that, that's, I think that'll make a huge difference. Sure. So can I go ahead and uh, introduce our, our guests? You may. I'm going to have a drink of champagne. Anyway. All right, go. So, well, we have uh, four people here at our roundtable. And uh, the first one is no stranger to making chips. He's our good friend, Brian Panic from Panic Precision. And uh, Brian is the vice president over there of Panic in Northbrook, Illinois. And since 1945, Panic Precision is a, has been a full-service precision machine shop equipped to handle most machining and finishing work in-house, including advanced components requiring assembly work. And Brian was on our episode way back almost two years ago. It was uh, Making Chips Forward Slash 11. And we talked all about robotic technology. And I'm sure Brian can add a little bit to what he's done over the last two years with regards to, because it's very uh, parallel to workforce development. So welcome, Brian. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. No problem. Glad to have you. And secondly, we have Jess Gadici. She is the talent and culture manager at Smalley Corporation in Lake Zurich, Illinois, about 20 minutes north of here. Uh, founded over 50 years ago, Smalley Steel Ring Company has evolved to become the world leader in the manufacture and development of retaining rings, spiral locks retaining rings, constant section rings, and wave springs. Jess's role at Smalley is to match great candidates to great opportunities, develop their employer brand, implement and nurture their candidate experience, and develop and execute onboarding programs. Welcome, Jess. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Next up, we have Bill Downey. Bill Downey is the president at High Grade Welding in Schaumburg, Illinois. High Grade, a contract manufacturer, specializes in complicated weldments, custom sheet metal fabrications, CNC machining, and assembly. And I've been in business for over 40 years. Welcome, Bill. Thanks for having me, guys. No problem. Welcome. Tom, Tom Simeone. He's the president at Manor Tool. I've known Tom for over a decade now. Manor Tool is in Schiller Park, Illinois, and is a full-service provider of quality stamping parts and metal fabrication. Established in 1959, Manor Tool and Manufacturing combines over a half of a century of metal fabrication engineering experience, modern management information scheduling systems, and state-of-the-art production processes. Welcome, Tom. 
Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for being here. These manufacturing leaders that are sitting right here in front of us represent a diverse swath of industries and play an important role in hiring, recruitment, retention, decision-making, and training of manufacturing employees, and we are pleased. Are we pleased, Jason? We are very pleased. Thank you, Jason. And we are pleased to have them here with us today. I heard them giggling over there. So we are pleased to have them here with us in this studio to share their insights into what they are doing to combat the skills crisis. Welcome all. So before we get started, yes. um, we do have a bunch of questions, and I want to I want to get right into that. I want Jim to did you um, craft any did you craft any questions? You're just going to go right off the no, cuff. No, I, well, you know, a little bit of both. I know. But I, I want you to you know define and spell swath first. Swath is a that's lot. a very complicated word that you know. It, d- I think S-W-A-T-H. you that up before you. I did not. I use it all the time. As a matter of fact, it's a large it's a large chunk of a large chunk of yeah. Like when when you're cutting the grass, you the width of the area that you're cutting is a swath of grass. Got does, it? Does this sound accurate, everybody? Yeah. Somebody Google it. Yeah. Okay. Want me to? <laughs> no, it's okay. okay. All right. Why don't we get started? Um, what I want to do is I want to go around the room to all four of you and just give me one word that comes to mind when, when we say workforce development and manufacturing. Just one word. We're going to set the bar with, with that and kind of get a kind of a tone for what's going on right now. Go ahead, Jess. Challenging. Inclusivity. Lack of people. I would agree with Jess. Challenging for sure. And that that seems to be what we're what we're hearing back from the metalworking nation that this is the most challenging thing that um, that people are talking about right now, and they want more cues on what do we do for workforce development. So I think that's great, and that definitely is right right in lockstep with what Jim and I have been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what I want to know, and I'll lead off the the big questions, I guess. What what is the pulse on what really is going? on right now in manufacturing hiring in our shops. So Jess, you mentioned challenging. So why don't you go ahead? Yeah. So for us, one of the biggest things that we're seeing is we have this generation of manufacturing leaders in our shop that have all of this knowledge, all of this experience, and then we've got this significant gap and not a lot coming up from behind them. And when you look at training and onboarding and development, you're looking at five to 10 years to get individuals even close to the same level as these guys who have 25, 30 years of experience. And then when you kind of partner that with the fact that high schools and different area schools and education aren't really doing a lot to drive the knowledge and drive the interest in manufacturing, that gap is getting bigger and bigger. So we have guys that are going to be leaving the workforce soon, retiring, and we don't have a lot coming up from behind them. And we're not really doing a lot to instill that excitement, to talk about these careers, to get you know high school students excited about what they can possibly doing, working with their hands, you know, CNC guys, all of that. And so I think that that gap is just continuously growing every day. And the longer that we get before we start trying to re-encourage the younger generation to come in, we're going to get to the point in five to 10 years that we're going to see this huge group retire and there's not going to be a lot behind them to take over that knowledge. Right. So you think that there's a lot of baby boomers right now in our industry that are employed mm-hmm. and able people, the workforce, and there's like this huge gap, maybe a decade to a decade and a half, maybe even two decades that haven't been filled. And now we just now are starting to get these millennials in. We're starting to amp up the training and get them going. But there's this huge gap that's in between. And we won't be able to train them fast enough to the, have the skill sets that the baby boomers have right now. Yeah, Is that right, absolutely. Jess? Absolutely. Okay. Brian. 
Well, and here's one of the issues that I'm seeing. I, I think Jess makes a good point. You've got a five to 10-year gap here where they have to learn a, a really high-skilled trade, at least uh, with what we do. And this new millennial generation, it's instant gratification. It's they want it now. So they come into a job, they work for a month, and they expect to be where these guys have been for 25, 30 years. And I don't know how to solve that. I don't know what that solution is yet. And I think it's something as employers we have to be very mindful of and how we approach and what more can we do to make them understand the long haul versus that instant gratification. It goes a little bit deeper in a social change to back to the parents of the students in high school to really educate them about what manufacturing careers are all about today. The excitement of manufacturing, the use of computers, software, and so forth in manufacturing. These are not old, dungy facilities of the 50s and 60s anymore. There are a lot of modern facilities out there. Like Brian, Brian is saying, the use of robotics, um, the use of uh, CAD software, uh, and, and drawing things right on computers and offices, uh, the parents really, I think, have to be educated that these are valuable career op- opportunities for their children. It really starts there to get the kids excited about, hey, let's go into manufacturing, here's what we can do, uh, and here are some of the opportunities for manufacturers. And it's up for the manufacturer to create that environment that clean environment, brightly lit environment, the use of computers, um, and so forth in your environment so that parents can now see that these are viable alternatives for their children to get involved in. Not everybody needs to go to college and come out with that huge debt. Here's an alternative, and I think it really starts there. Right, and college isn't for everybody, so no, it so, is not. Go so ahead, so I'm, I'm going to push back a little bit on this. Um, I do a lot of work with um, East and West Leiden. It's a local high school here, and they put a big emphasis on manufacturing and they do say this is a great job opportunity and you're going to make good money and it's not like your father's machine shop. It is clean. It is exciting. There is technology, robots and everything. So I'm seeing that right now, but the problem is those kids are not ready to work yet. So is it is it that we're doing the right things now, but we kind of like lost like 10 years? Like there's like just this big gap. Go, go ahead, Tom. Well, I think uh, for society in general, we we, we have kind of uh, avoided manufacturing for a good 15 years, and it has carried a, uh, I don't know, uh, I think parents have had a chip on their shoulder, and so have all the high school counselors in, in pushing kids into four-year colleges, and I think that's where, um, unfortunately, a lot of these kids have a lot of debt. Uh, and, uh, you know, rather than working and going to school, and um, I think 90% of the TMA companies pay for their schooling and their, their, while they're working. Uh, so not only can they get a education, but then they come out, uh, out of, without any debt, and they're walking into a very well-paid position. Uh, I, think, I think one of the things uh, that, that we have to keep in mind, though, is as we are pushing the limits of trying to find candidates, we have to make sure we're very inclusive of all types of candidates. Uh, because uh, I do think um, at times we've, we've uh, mined the high schools. Uh, I'm active as well with East and West Leiden for, uh, for almost 18 years now. But uh, we also find that the disillusioned mid-20-year-old is um, a, a a good candidate for these type of jobs. And the reason why I say that is because they've been out in the job field. They've worked at Starbucks where they, they get uh, pushed out of their uh, benefits because they don't ever really get their benefits. Starbucks uh, tends to promise. My wife went through this. They went through um, 
you know, they, they say, oh, you have to work a certain amount of time, uh, but you never really get those hours. And as you get closer to those hours and closer to those benefits, schedules change, things change, and it's always out in the reach, but you're never able to obtain it. Uh, therefore, a, a lot of 20-year-olds come out of college, come out of uh, high school, or, and, and, and flounder for years. So, uh, and then all of a sudden, they fall into a manufacturing career. So I think um, those, really, it's all ages, all races, all types uh, could, could be good candidates for us if we are uh, open to that. I think that's a great question. And, and Tom, we're going to go back to that actually a little bit later on to talk about, you know, how do we look at different demographics and, and try to mine for, you know, great manufacturing leaders. Um, so going back to what everybody has said, have your companies come up with any kind of solutions to this? I guess you would call it like a generational gap in um, finding good, good manufacturing candidates. What have you guys done? One thing we're doing, it kind of leads off what Tom was saying, is that middle-aged, you know, middle-aged, <laughs> uh, mid-20s, the 25 to 30-year-old student or candidate that's been out in the workforce has been around the block, worked at uh, box stores and, and service stores and stuff like that, are really floundering out there of what they want to do. If they have some mechanical aptitude, the guys that work at uh, a Jiffy Lube or transmission shops and want to change careers – those guys are used to working with their hands and their tools. They fit right in. So we are actually looking at bringing on those 25 to 30-year-olds that they have more of a sense of stay and a willingness to learn the trade because they have that mechanical aptitude and then provide training for them. Okay, so you're looking more for aptitude and character as opposed to experience that they've had in the sure, past. Sure, sure. I, I totally agree with that. Totally agree with that. So are you trying to recruit people that are from engineering programs? Like if you get an application on your desk and this particular young student hit, was in the autos class in high school and did well in that, you would say, hey, this guy's got a green light for promise. He's got some promise. He may not necessarily end up to be the best employees, but at the at the end of the day, you know that this candidate has some experience, uh, he's got some mechanical aptitude, and that's always a good, a good thing to start with. Jim, it is because it's um, a better chance of succeeding with that individual than bringing on an individual that has never worked in a shop before and he gets to be working in a shop. And we've gone down that road before where we brought on guys that have never worked in a shop before. They've gone through... Um, small training sessions on CNCs and stuff like that. And they started off in the beginning position as a, a one-year apprentice. But as soon as they got in the shop, found out working on, on their feet eight hours a day, they're like, whoa, this ain't for me. Right. So we've, we now are looking for that mechanical aptitude person skill set that it, it just increases your chance of success with, a, with an employee. Yeah, I think one approach we've taken is still the most important thing is show up on time every day and be predictable when you come to your job. It's the so, soft skills, it's right? It's the soft skills. So, um, you know, even a few years ago, uh, we'd bring people in from a CNC uh, class or whatever it might be, and we had a low success rate because when the chips start flying and the oil starts flowing, they don't see that in class. So kind of the strategy we've taken is who are relatively newer people that have come in entry level, um, needed the job, but are showing up on time every day, and then we identify them and start training them. So, so you're saying it's like a, maybe like your janitorial guy and you're you even just always a, dependable and you you're a hand packer a sorter right but somebody that's really? dependable we can teach you we can teach you almost any skill so you're that's not invest in that person we're gonna invest in that person and and you know concurrently with that we've gone to automation right. so automate the non value added tasks and then ta- identify 
the really good people that you can rely on and uptrain them on on a higher skill. And that's that's kind of where we've gone with uh, with our approach. Yeah. Go ahead. John. I'd have to agree with that. We go through a full vetting as well, and and we usually keep a person in a lower lower or menial level job for about anywhere from six to eight months, six to six to nine months. So what do you mean by that? We, what 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 is that? Oh, what is that? Production job? operator, what, oh, uh, shipping okay. clerk, um, deburring cells, um, uh, packer, um, you know, press operator, um, and and if they show aptitude over time, and and there are some basics. Uh, math skills that they need at those levels as well. So if they if they excel in those math areas, uh, if they're if they're, you know they show up every day, same same story. They have to have those soft skills, uh, and really that weeds out almost sixty percent of the candidates we see. So I think there's kind of two parts to that. So when you talk about the soft skills, I think that there's almost a bit of um, a responsibility on the manufacturing companies kind of get in front of these students. I was at a manufacturing career fair um, a week ago for high school students, literally to just talk about resumes, to talk about what jobs they could do. And, you know, there's not a lot at the high school level. I think some schools are getting better, but there's not a lot in terms of preparing students for interviews for those type of things. So it's still almost like a grain of salt. You have to you know, talk these students through and really kind of make sure your interviewer is prepared to handle those situations because these students might not have the best soft skills. They might come in and not know how to talk through an interview. They might not know how to put their resume together. And so it's balancing it internally so we can try to get as much out of them to see if we get a feel that they're going to be that dependable person and then getting them in the door, making sure that we're able to train and develop and we're doing our our responsibility in terms of, you know, coaching, are we checking in with them? Are we constantly providing that training and mentoring more than once a year at a review to kind of grow those skills and, you know, not only make these people productive, but turn them into, you know, our next leaders, our next rock stars, whatever you want to call it. Got it. Got it. Tom wants to add to that. Well, one one thing that we just started, and this this is fresh, uh, we started a w- week-long internship for when the uh, high school seniors are on their spring break uh, we bring them through the shop for a full week. We pay them, and then we uh, have them go through each department. So they're not just seeing the tool and die maker or the designer. They're also seeing inspection, shipping, sales, all aspects of the business. Because just because someone, uh, you know, we're all we're all very uh, um, focused on the technical skills, but just like every TMA member, uh, you know, there is a, a huge assortment of job. Uh, descriptions and job opportunities at every one of our companies that are on multi-level areas, you know, sales, marketing, uh, uh, accounting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that internship is a quick uh, way to kind of see if the student's interested, and then they would go to part-time employment in the summer where they start the vetting process. Do do you guys have a, um, so at Zengers, we actually have like a formalized, what I like to call um, pipeline. I I have a conversation. If I'm hiring somebody and like, you know, Brian mentioned picking and packing, if I'm hiring somebody in shipping and receiving or the warehouse, I let that person know from the very beginning, this is not going to be your job for the rest of your life. Like I want you to work for my company until you're ready to retire. However, you're not going to stay here because my expectation is that you're going to start in this position and you need to be able to um, hone your, your skills and your knowledge in order to move up to the next one because I need to find somebody else in the warehouse in shipping and receiving in order to bring into your position and get that person groomed to a higher level job. Does, do you, does anybody have anything like that or is that kind of what along the same lines of what you're talking about in a formalized way? Go ahead, I mean, Tom. I mean, I'd support that, yes. But, but again, it depends on the individual. 
you could start off that way. But if, if they don't show that they're responsible enough to show up every day and do the job the way they're supposed to, you know, it's a two-way street. Right. But I guess, I guess my, my standpoint is that I don't want that person staying and picking and packing, like you mentioned, Brian, for the rest of their life. Like, you're not going to keep getting raises being a picking and packer. You know, you need to move up into being, a, being an operator or being just something else, quality control, whatever it is. Go ahead, Bill. And it's that way with any person bringing on in a company. If you provide them with the opportunity and says, "Here's your, you can move to this level and this level, it's really up to the individual to say, hey, show me some effort. I'm going to go to the classes at the TMA, go to blueprint reading. But if he doesn't go to blueprint reading and so forth, he's not going to advance. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a counter thing that both the employee and the employer must show the interest uh, in the individual, and the, and the individual's got to take the interest on themselves. And what we see a lot is they come into those positions, but they don't move. And they right. don't show that effort. Even though we provide training to do that, when they get married, they have children, life gets in the way. And sometimes they end up staying in those positions and not advancing themselves mm-hmm. and not getting those increases. But they should recognize that we at least provide the opportunity to do a lot of different things in the organization. And as long as you provide that educational background and provide them the, the roadmap, it's really up to the individual to take that initiative. Yeah, I agree. And And to me, it's just... You set that expectation from the beginning because you want to get that other person that maybe has not as fulfilling of a job outside of manufacturing to take that place if they're not going to advance themselves. Right. So I've got I want I've got a lead in question to this one. So you know, everybody that owns a, a shop, a manufacturing company nowadays is is feeling the pain. I mean. Even I feel it down to my small shop to big shops like Brian's. Um, it, it, it's all the same. It's different levels, but it's all the same. So how do we go out there and how do we recruit these new people? So what I want to know, and I want to throw this question out, is do your recruitment efforts change to attract millennial versus baby boomers? If so, how? I think Jess wants Jess, to answer this. Go right, her hand went right up. Go ahead. I'm going to say the thing that, you know, a lot of people um, kind of cringe at, but social media. I mean, we built our social media presence. Um, when I started with Smelly about three years ago, that was our focus. And if we're looking at attracting millennials, my little plug for Julie, um, if we're looking at attracting these people, you have to go to where they're at. And they're on Facebook. They're on Twitter. They're on YouTube looking at technical videos. That's where they are. You know, posting a job in the paper is not going to work anymore. If, right. It's actually, if you call the papers now, they'll tell you that that package includes their online Platform. Presence, yeah. Yeah. So even those different platforms are moving away from that. So it's just about identifying that buyer, who it is and where you're going to go after them. And so social media has been incredibly successful for us, even down to something as simple as somebody noticing that their friend liked or had any sort of activity on our Facebook page. Well, now our reach is significantly bigger right. just by doing that, just by acknowledging so give, our Give us some examples or, on what we need to do as manufacturers to really engage the millennials through a social media campaign and sure. what, what Smalley is doing. Sure. So, you know, we look at each platform for its own purpose. What, what so, do you mean platform? Each social platform? Each social platform. So, LinkedIn, so Facebook, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, okay. exactly. Okay, each got it. With its own purpose. Okay. Not sharing the same content 
across all four. You're not giving anybody a reason to follow and engage on all four if you're just kind of constantly blasting the same thing. So we've defined, you know, what each platform is going to be for us. Facebook is our focus on culture and employee engagement. That's where we show who we are, what it's like to work for us. So we share um, any employee anniversaries. We do posts about our wellness team, all of our culture things. You know, we have a, a phenomenal team that puts on a March Madness tournament. We're about to play basketball next week. Some of us worse than others. Um, But we do it and it's fun. And that's, I think, what you know, that generation wants to see. They want the Google work environment. They want somewhere that's going to be fun and engaging. And so just by putting those posts out there, the engagement that we'll see anytime I talk to a candidate, they're like, oh, you guys did a bags tournament last week. That was really cool. Or, oh, you acknowledged that employee on their 10 year anniversary. That was really cool. All of those things just show what it's like to work for us and kind of a, a little snapshot into our culture. And that's been so incredibly successful. And, and that platform is Facebook that you do. That was things. Facebook, okay, yeah. And what about the other yep. ones? So, yeah, then, so, so it's different for each social platform? Yeah, so, so you could do... So you, what do you do on LinkedIn then? Yeah, so you can definitely share similar content. You can share the same thing across all four. You don't want to get in the habit of sharing the same thing all the time across all four. So LinkedIn is going to be more of our professional site. Mm-hmm. That's where we're going after more of like the engineers, our plant managers, um, kind of those skilled... Individuals, I'm not seeing a lot of like the CNC programmers there yet. A little bit more on the engineering side is where I'll really hit LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. But that's where the professional content is. We'll share a lot of technical articles. Okay. I share your articles yep. quite right. frequently. Sure. <laughs> but Good. that's Thank where you. that audience wants to read that. You know, right. if we were posting that on Facebook, the two aren't really going to match as well. If you think about when you're personally on Facebook, you're not in the mindset to be doing you're technical in a reading. Mode, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So you're yeah. going to see something fun and right away go, oh, that looks awesome. If you're on LinkedIn, you're on it ideally for professional reasons. So we're going to try to engage you that way, show you something really cool that we're doing or show you that we are the industry experts by commenting or engaging on something that's relevant to the industry. Mm-hmm. So kind of having that mindset and aware of what you're doing on each platform is going to just naturally build your followers, the engagement, and then ideally put your brand out there and hopefully have people coming to you as opposed to kind of knocking down everybody's door. What what about Twitter, Instagram? Is there any other? So like, we're not doing Instagram too much yet. Um, really, kind of sticking to the core four: your Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn. Um, Twitter obviously is going to be like that water cooler talk. I use Twitter a lot for college recruiting. So if I'm going to build a campaign around hitting, you know, one of the uh, mechanical engineering schools or something like that, um, if I'm going to CLC to look for my CNC programmers, I'm going to build a campaign around that. Try to attack the students that way. Twitter's you know, kind of a separate beast in that it's fast and you have to be very engaged and very quick and paying attention and responding. Um, so like I said, it's just being aware of what that platform is there to do as opposed to sending a tweet out once every other week and not really seeing anything from it. It's because that's not the best way to utilize it. Well, one of the things that I found is that, um, and, and this could just be, you know, my my impression, but there's a lot there's a big machinist community actually on Instagram and maybe that's the place where you know they're not necessarily interacting with you on Twitter they're not interacting with you on Facebook well, there's, or there's LinkedIn a big, but maybe Instagram is is a place where they might be yeah there's a big Facebook machinist page too and there's a big mm-hmm. yeah, yeah so there's some yeah. select groups within some of those yeah. channels too yeah so we've addressed attracting millennials now how do we attract the baby boomers are we attracting them through social media or newspaper how- ads remember Jim I do remember that. Yes. The big sandwich board out front. (laughs) What's that? The big sandwich board. Well, don't laugh, but I have a sign in my front lawn 
in in the ground, you know, I went out there and you know pushed it right in the ground, you know, help wanted the old fashioned way of doing it. We still have it. I know, yeah. and you know what? We get a lot of traction from that. It's free. It doesn't cost anything, just like any of your social media stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'll have that machinist that's driving through Elk Grove that sees that sign that walks right in the front door. Yeah, I think in very I mean, industrial areas that that yeah, that, it, it, that it works. Is, you yes. know, but obviously, if you're you know in the middle of you know cornfield nebraska or something that's not going to work as yeah. how about you guys any, any any tips on what you're doing to attract um millennials and or baby boomers or anybody in between brian yeah i can't say we have a solution yet but we just know there, there's a big difference between the millennials and the baby boomers and what they're looking for in their job and we have a new hr manager starting early april and that's one of my goals for her is to figure out what do we need to be doing? Because the millennials, it's not enough to just come and do your job. I think the baby boomer generation, it was, you know, work hard, uh, have some pride in what you do. And the millennials, they want more than that. Um, once we once we can solve that, or at least somewhat solve that, I think it'll be easier on all of us, especially as manufacturers. We're not Amazon or Google, where we can have the free lunch and free dinner and all the parties in the office and jeans this and shorts that on a Friday. I mean, we, we need parts coming off a machine. But right, what, right. I, I, yes, a blue collar um, environment is a lot different than a white collar environment. But at the end of the day, I think that we, as manufacturers and owners of manufacturing companies, can take some of those bullets that they're doing at Google, at Amazon, and implement them somehow. Maybe give offer a flex schedule. Maybe offer. Um, more engrossing benefits um, because that's what I'm hearing that that millennials want. We need we need to find a way to get more creative for sure. Absolutely, I think that's what it's all about. And the th- the fact that we're thinking about it is great. Absolutely, you know what I mean. It's the people that don't even have the mindset that are going to eventually fade out yep. and go away. Go ahead, Tom. I I think the big factor, and I have to agree with every all the points that have been raised. I, I think everybody's. Uh, got a pretty good handle on what it's going to take. But, but I think we have to recognize that culture means a lot. Um, and even though, uh, you know, you know we're, we're definitely not Google. We're not those kind of companies where we're going to have a game room or a coffee bar or something like that. Uh, but I think you don't, you don't I, have an espresso machine. I have a curry machine. Well, we, we, I don't use it, but, yeah, but he's got have it. Yeah. But you know what I'm saying? Uh, you know, but I do think the culture that you create in your company and the care that you take or give to your employees on a day to day basis means a lot. And I think as candidates come in, uh, they recognize that. Um, so I don't think you can discount that either. Uh, but I do also think that there are certain people that. They don't want to progress, you know, because we're all sitting around this table. We're all pretty aggressive type people. We want to better ourselves, better our employees, better our, for our customers. But there's some people in this world who just don't want to do that. And, you know, so, they're, well, so they're you stuck. have to let... They're you, stuck, Tom. Well, yeah. you have to let people find their own levels that they're comfortable with. Well, so that's where the vetting process also comes but, into play. But should that, I mean, should that be part of your culture? If your expectation is that they are advancing themselves, that should be something that's clearly embedded in your hiring process. Oh, no no question. If they if they show the will to, to, to proceed to educate themselves and, and go after an opportunity that is clearly there... Uh, and made clear that it's there. So uh, then, then you should offer it to them, and they, and 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 it go, you know, like again a two way street. But but if if they don't pursue that, and you've made it very clear that that exists, that opportunity exists. Well, then you know, then if they're happy to be that machine operator, then so be it. That's their decision. 
So that, that was a great segue, Tom, and I didn't even ask you to do that. Um, you talked about culture, and one of the things that we've talked about consistently on making chips is um, defining your core values as a company. So what, what I would ask the group, and I'd love to hear all of your, um, your feedback on there, um, how, do, how do your core values fit into you know, hiring and, and um, uh, retention and ongoing development and training and everything like that? Like I know at, at my company, we define those values very early on in the hiring process. We want to make sure that we uh, weed out the people that aren't going to fit our core values. And we evaluate people. And eventually, if there's going to be an exit plan, it's because they don't fit our core values. So does anybody have that same type of a process? Well, like, go, go, like go Jason ahead, told me, we you hire evaluate and, and fire, fire right. based on the core values that you set forth right. in your company. I like to say um I, I hire, like that. I, evaluate and um uh terminate develop. <laughs> oh, to oh. <laughs> okay. I mean yes that that is true. We we do we do fire according to our core values, but it's not something if that they're I, not, I don't necessarily advertise in that. If they're not part of the program, if they're not part of the program, they have to go, right? Yeah, you are correct yeah. about that. So we actually spent um, a good portion of last year developing what we have internally referred to as our culture passport. It's literally a little book, fits in a front pocket, fits in your back pocket. It's carried around by our leaders. It's on the shop floor. Um, We spent a lot of time defining what our culture is going to be. I think a misconception is culture is everybody walking around smiling and happy. And, you know, that's really not what an organization's culture is. You know, are you committed to training and development? That's part of your culture. You know, are you committed to that ongoing growth? Are you an open door environment? What are those kind of things that attribute to how your organization functions? That's your culture, not if everybody's smiling and walking around happy. While that's great, it's not your culture. And so we really made the dedication to say, you know, we're going to be focused on training and development. If somebody comes in and shows this desire to want to grow, we're going to provide them the tools and the resources to do that. So now when we're interviewing, I'll reference our culture passport. I'll show it to candidates. It's kind of a nice um, way to get them excited. You know, really at the end of the day, you have to sell yourself just as much as they're going to, you know, you're choosing them, they're going to choose you. And so we've kind of incorporated it into our process that way. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest piece is though, following up on it. I think if it talked about at any point in the interview, if it's talked about on social media, if it's talked about on your website and you have employees in your company for a week, a month, and those things aren't true and you're not living them, that will spread like wildfire and you're going to do more harm than good. So it's making sure that you're following through on them, but you know, it's understanding what those core values are first and then using them to highlight during the interview process. It should be something that you're proud of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can, I mean, you could talk about core values. One thing I just ran into is um, I hired somebody who, you know, he really talked to talk during the interview process about our core values. And, you know, when, when the feet hit the ground, I mean, <laughs> that's all it was, was talk. And, and everybody in my company knew it. And but you didn't. No, no, I oh, knew I oh. knew it in the very I well I mean I was sold on him in the very beginning yeah. and he sold me on himself and he sold me on sharing those same values. Um but when the boots hit the ground he wasn't pulling his weight according to our core values. He just knew how to talk about them. And everybody in the company knew it because we had defined what those values are and I had a lot of um sit down discussions with people where they're like 
he's not cutting it. And it's because he's not fitting these core values. And I didn't have, it wasn't a decision that I had to make. Like the rest of the team made it. They're like, he's not one of us. Yeah, but you had to do the dirty work. (laughs) I had to do the, well, he actually did. This is like a whole nother story, which we could talk about in a future episode of making chips. He did, he did the dirty work to to oust himself anyway, but um, something completely separate. Um, But everybody in the company knew it. They they were like, he's not one of us, you know? And I think it's important to say who you are so that you can make sure that you have the right people working for you because you're going to be that much more efficient when that you know, when that I, happens i think is people that hire other people i think you know pretty well you get a gut feeling inside when you're sitting down you're talking to somebody and you know you say this person is has our core values they 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 embody them. We I feel them. Yeah, and you know you can't get it right all the time. No, you obviously. can't get it right all the time. But hopefully, if you have some of these processes in place, that we can mitigate it down just a little bit more and win more than we lose. Yeah, I agree. And and you know it doesn't mean like when you have your core values established, it doesn't mean that everybody has to look the same. Like at, at my company, I mean we're very diverse. Actually, we speak like five different languages amongst everybody from like several different countries. I mean, you know, some people um, didn't even, you know, grow up in the United States, but, you know, we all look very different, but we all do very much share, share those same core sure. values. And that's why we've become so efficient in such a, um, such a lean and mean company and we're accomplishing our goals because of it. Yeah. So I, I have, I have a question that I'm just dying to get out. Uh, well, I got a couple of them left, but um, because it's so hard to find these skilled manufacturing people nowadays, um, nearly impossible from what I see and hear. Um, would you say that we are there's a bidding war going on right now? Absolutely, yeah, Panic, absolutely, right so no it, doubt. Tell us a little bit about what you see with regards to a bidding war, and how do we mitigate that? How do we how, how do we try and not sell our companies based on money. Why don't we define what a, what a bidding war is in the, yeah, in the employment yeah. practice? Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, I don't think any of us are getting into a direct bidding war, but I think I think uh, employees in the manufacturing industry are starting to realize how specialized they are and how valuable that they are. So um, it, it's very hard to find those high-skilled people because everybody's protecting them. They're the, they're the cream, you know, you talk about salary caps and sports and all that. They're the top guys that are getting the top money and they know it. And all of us are building walls around those top 10%, 15 in some cases, 20%. And so, yeah, there is a bidding war. Their, their wages are going up. Our, our average shop floor wage is well above minimum wage. It's driven largely by the big guys that, um, that have that high skill level that you just can't replace. Jess, did you want to add to that? Yeah, it was actually um, interesting. I watch it pretty closely. And I think last year, um, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics released that manufacturing saw something crazy like a 30, 33% wage increase in the year, which for one year is an insane. How do we stay competitive when we have to increase wages by 30%? Well, that I mean, that's the tough thing that we actually dealt with last year and really looked at that. Because when you get into you know, a larger organization, we're a bigger company, and when you're increasing those entry-level wages, you need to adjust internally. Obviously, you want to keep the people that are there and not be paying people coming in more than the ones that you have there. It's, right. You kind of get in that a little bit of a hamster wheel, and you're you know, needing to figure out the best way to solve kind of both ends of it. And so, you know, we took the approach that we're going to do as much as we can on that internal entry while doing as much as we can on the internal side so that, you know, both, both sides are going to be at least, 
you know, somewhat happy as, as happy as we can make them kind of admitting there's just no way that we're going to be able to increase wages 33% every year. It's just not feasible. So we're not, it's not sustainable. It's absolutely not. So we're trying to bank on the other things that we have too. I think a lot of our communication talks about, you know, the benefits that we're incredibly proud of the internal things that we offer our employees, those things that kind of make up for the fact that maybe we're not paying the $2 more that a company is down the road. That's, you know, hiking their wages up. We, we can't do that. That's realistic. But we're going to do everything we can to offer all of those different things. We're going to send our employees to, you know, Mazatrol for training and development. And those that want to grow and be um, invested in their career will see the worth in us as opposed to that extra, you know, dollar, whatever it may be. Yeah. And you're going to focus on your culture so that um, one of the things that I try to get through um, to my team is that when you focus on your culture, you go home at nighttime, not frustrated because you're working with people that are like-minded. And I would say that um, wages, although they're very important, they're not number one or number two. You know what I mean? Like everybody wants to go home at nighttime and like feel good about what they did and not feel like frustrated on a daily basis. And there's a value in that. Um, so since it is a, a bidding war, um, what, what have, have you all um, implemented you know, outside of skilled labor in order to um, fight that battle? Bill, go right ahead. So it, it is, it is, you're all talking about the same thing because we are going to be competing against each other for skilled labor employees until we get the next generation up there. But I think we're all on the right track, and even the older manufacturers listening today have to realize that it is culture, and it is how, and a lot of us have to do what Jess is talking about doing in their companies to attract the young. Um, but we've tried to make a, a real clean environment, well-lit environment, air-conditioned environment, but this year we've now added more benefits. So we've added uh, dental and vision coverage so that we can compete. We have to offer more than the next guy. The next guy might just offer the health insurance and, and you're competing with his wages, but now you're, you're trying to give him that whole package of everything that we offer, trying to do more and create you know, that environment and that culture where they enjoy working. So you really have to look at how do you differentiate yourself from your competitor uh, to retain it and get those skilled labor, but then also how do you grow with the, the upcoming classes to make it an enjoyable place to work. Sure. Tom, go right ahead. Uh, one thing we've seen is um, some of the OEMs are having a real tough time keeping their workforce. And actually, I think they're lo- some of the OEMs are actually losing out to the smaller companies. Uh, we have seen a huge amount of ter- turnover um, at a couple of our customers. Um, and um, again, I, I think it's... Uh, uh, corporate, unfortunately, uh, you know, they have not trained the way they should have over the last 20 years, uh, uh, and they've used to feed on us. Uh, I think a lot of uh, that might be call- coming back to haunt them. The large OEMs have to get back into the training routine, and uh, we have only seen certain ones uh, buy into that program. Uh, but there's been a lot of uh, large corporations that are losing their technology base just because um, you know, of the culture they have created for them, for their employees, uh, and also the training that they have not done. Right. Oh, Brian, go right ahead. Just one more. I was going to go to the next question, but no, but just one more thing I'll add advice wise. I I think the best thing I've heard, one of our good friends, Aaron Weagle, current chairman of the TMA, his goal is to hire two apprentices every year. And he's done that for the last five years. And I think a lot of, or I think all of us should take that approach. We have to take the long-term view that, 
if you, if you can hire somebody like that or a couple people like that per year, yes, over time you're going to have 10 or 12 of those people and you may lose some in there, but at least you're filling that pipeline. It, it's not easy, um, but it, it's definitely doable. And in some ways you almost need to overload certain departments with those additional or those extra people just to protect yourself from you know, from people leaving or the bidding wars or whatever the case might be. So I, I think that's great. And just that idea of, of having a pipeline is something that we really need to, to focus on. So I was actually kind of queuing you up, Brian, on this, because I know that you do have a solution to the, um, to the wage battle with um, uh, the robots that you've, you've put in, into your shop. I mean, you talked about that in uh, episode 11. Um, tell us a little bit more about how that has um, you know, impacted your company. Well, um, we started implementing robots in, I believe it was April of 2013. So it's been four years now. I think when I did episode 11, we were at 20 or 25 mm-hmm. robots. That's what I remember. We're up to 42 robots now. And the goal is Sweet. to add about That's nice. The goal is to add about 10 a year. And the irony is um, we've gone from 155, 160 people to 185 people with 42 robots. So the robots have actually added people again, in high value areas. So, so how do you sell that? I mean, I, to, to some, to some people, like even like if, if I told my dad that he would, he would, he would never believe that because people automatically think in their head, that's, that robot is going to take away a human body from that production. So how are you augmenting that into continued, um, work, workforce. Well, to be honest, when we first started, we didn't know what would happen or how it would happen. We just knew when we saw the application for what we need on our floor that we need these robots. We don't have enough people as it is. And so we better get some robots in to help the workload. And what ended up happening was as we're growing the business and our sales guys out in the field, customers are seeing that and they want the predictability, they want the throughput, they want the quality. So we start generating more business. And we, we had a department where we probably had 32 people. That's now down to 22. But all 10 of those people have been put into higher, higher okay. valued job positions. So now the selling point is we can put you in a position where you're going to learn to sharpen your tool. You're going to learn to run a robot. Um, you might learn how to offset or program a CNC machine. And so it's kind of fed on itself. So the irony is we've had the robots, but now we need more people, which we, can't st- or we still can't find. What are the, um, the top jobs, I guess you would say, that those robots are doing right now for you? Sophistication level? Is that what you mean? No, no. What I'm asking is what exactly is that robot doing that maybe a, um, a person was doing before that? Well, number one is they're loading and unloading a machine, which can be dangerous. Um, the robot's going and loading a collet, starting the machine, grabbing the part out. Uh, so I, I would almost argue that our, our shop floor has become safer for the employee because of the robots. There, there's not as much loading and unloading. And that's a that's a selling point when you're looking to hire somebody that we operate a safer environment that some of our peers do because of the robots that we utilize. Correct. And and the robots are also doing light assembly. In some cases, they're doing light machining, countersinking that we never would have imagined four years ago, but that's what they're doing. And inspection. And inspection. <laughs> yeah. we, do, we do some in-process inspection with the, with the robots. We've pokey-yoked certain certain operations. But from the employee standpoint, again, they've gone from handling oil and handling chips uh, and something that uh, could be, I wouldn't say dangerous, but it's not the safest environment to, well, let the robot handle that part and they worry about the quality, 
and uh, the tool maintenance and the machine maintenance more than we did before. And robots don't have to wear gloves or safety glasses or correct. Like they can that, get right? hit by something and you don't have to worry about them being injured. You don't have to take them to the hospital. That too. Yeah. I know you dress your robots though, so they do have to wear clothes, right? <laughs> they, yeah, they wear clothes. Yeah, they they've got their own jersey numbers. Yes, I've seen that. I have another question that I th- think is wonderful, and I want everybody here to answer it. So we've all been in that situation where we get a resume across our desk, and we say, "Oh, Bill Smith, he's working at Panic Precision." What do you do when you get a resume in front of you? that's one of your peers and or friends, what is the right thing to do? So, so quick, um, <laughs> you, get, you get a resume and he works at Car Machine and Tool. What do you do? Well, it depends on the friend. So if it's Car it Machine... Does depend, it does depend on the friend, that's for sure. If it's Car Machine, I'm calling Jim and letting him know. Yeah. I had that happen... Fernando, pro- right? Probably three months ago, one of, our, one of our good colleagues, he called me and said, I'm just letting you know I got this resume. And how did it, how did it, how did you handle that on your end then? We didn't handle it internally, but he he was just letting me know that this particular person was, was out looking, Mm -hmm. but I appreciate it from, from a friend that they would do that. But again, it depends, I think it depends on the colleague. So in a situation where you're, you're good friends with that person, obviously, you know, it's clear what you should do. You should call that person. But what if it's just, you know, somebody that you kind of know or somebody down the street that, you know, you, you never met them, but you know, they're, you know, in the same business as you, what, what do you do? Do you not even mention it? I mean, just the guy down the street. Just the, the, the machine no, company. If I don't down the know street. the guy down the street. If I've never met the guy, I'm not going to call him and say, "Oh, I got an application." You know, the guy's looking for a job here because, I mean, let's face it they they move around. The you know they're in high demand nowadays. So, um, no, I, I mean, if if they were if they were a board member of the TMA, if I knew them well at the TMA, I would definitely call them and say, "Hey, I've got I've got your guy." right here on my desk that's looking for a job. What's going on? Bill, go ahead. One of my first questions to that individual is, why are you unhappy there? Why are you leaving? What is Good going question. on there? Would you, per, would you go out to that employee in the shop and, and, and challenge him on it and say, hey, I, you, my well, friendship car just told me well, that... If it's a friend that told me, then I would say I would go out and, and talk to him and ask the individual. But I'm talking about a case where it's some other machine shop uh, from... Uh, south side, to say, of, of the city that I know nothing of, and he's coming to, he's jumping ship or he's trying to play the, the price game. Okay. So the first question I'm asking him is, and especially if he's been there for a long period of time or five years, what are you, why are you leaving? What are you so unhappy with? What do you think you're going to gain here? What are you looking for? And that creates a lot of conversation with that individual to see what their really intent is. or what, what See their character. To see their character. You're trying to judge a little bit of some of those questions of why are they unhappy at this facility. They, might, they, they may have some very valid reasons, and they're, they're looking to improve themselves and, and, and have better opportunity, which, which is fine, which is a good answer. But those are my first questions out of the box with that individual is really to find out what are you looking for. Can I offer that to you, or are you just playing the numbers game? I have to agree with Bill. That's a very good thing to do. And I'd also say that Brian's got it right in the sense that if you know the person who they're leaving, you, it's a good thing to call that other company and say, hey, look, this is happening. But I, but I am a firm believer that if an employee is planning on leaving you, they're going to leave you anyways. And it's really for you to be in touch with your own um, structure uh, that – 
you know, something must have, you know, for someone to leave you, something must have changed, either supervisory or um, culture, et cetera, something uh, other than a big wage change. Uh, and if they're going to leave you for a big wage change, then, you know, you, the best thing you can do is give them, you know, shake their hand and say, good luck. But, you know, no one likes to see employees leave, especially key employees. But um, you should kind of know, you should have enough pulse on your own company to know why that person might be looking. That that is that is a great point. It's you know it helps to I guess um, show up your your weaknesses so you can fix those things. You know they say that the the best thing that competition does is that it makes you you know a better company. Yeah, it makes you sharper. Exactly, exactly. Jess, anything to add to that? Yeah, it's it's tough. I think that it it actually goes a little bit deeper than kind of just reaching out to your friend. There's some things that come into play there. You know, if you're reaching out on behalf of or in regards to this individual's resume, you're calling, you know, a company owner, a general manager, you're almost doing, you know, kind of an off the record reference. And in some cases that can get you into some trouble if the employee finds out about it and thinks that you didn't move on them based on something, you know, that was in that conversation or if it gets out that, you know, that was being done or you can't apply to this company because they're going to call all of your previous employers when maybe you're trying that employees trying to look kind of quietly because they're unhappy so it's a little bit of a double-edged sword there you don't want to necessarily be kind of create that reputation in the industry where employees feel like they can't come and apply there because you're just going to run through and call everyone because like you said there can be employees that maybe they have valid reasons you know maybe it's a small shop and they don't have any growth and things have been great but you know they're quietly starting their search and if you kind of become known as the one that's going to call everybody and you're not doing a professional reference that's not the best reputation that you want to create for yourself right. either sure. so it it is definitely a very delicate balance mm-hmm. yeah i mean i lost um uh somebody that to somebody that we all know just merely based on geography. You know, they they had a long commute to my place and they had a five minute commute to uh somebody else that we that we all know and really he didn't he didn't he never say anything that to me, me ahead of time. Um but after he hired him we, we talked about him like I knew she was looking because <laughs> she wanted to work near home, you know and well that makes sense. You know, so there could yeah. be some other kind of reason besides that. But I think um to Jess's point, you know, um with um the metalworking nation being, you know, across the country, um you know, you know your local laws. You know what I mean. Know your state laws because yeah, you you don't want to get yourself into trouble in that regard either. I think we're about ready to wrap it up. But I, I have one. I have one last I have question. One, too. I have one last question too. Okay, can I do mine first? Sure, go ahead. Because you because we actually skipped mine anyway. So did I? Did I yeah, skip? You right probably over talked you? over me. I probably did. Like that. I, that's yeah. that's that's typical of me. <laughs> um, go ahead. So we we talked go about Jason. this a, a little bit before. Um, what have you have you all done anything to like reach other demographics? So um, some of the different demographics that that we've talked about before would be um, veterans, low income geographies, um, just other um, I just other places where you know it's not a typical um, demographic to to attract that um, person for a manufacturing career. So obviously the unemployment offices in a state can be a really good resource. I've made a couple contacts there. And then you start branching out into um, different networking groups. Veteran job fairs are going to be great. But from there, you're getting into, um, like I said, those different groups. I spoke to a group of veterans about a year and a half ago and talked to them about building resumes. And I think 
kind of getting a little creative in that regard, not necessarily going out to poach and look for candidates, but more having the mindset of what can I do to better the manufacturing industry and how can I get my name out there? Just by getting involved in those different ways, you're naturally going to bring candidates to your work, to your organization, but you're actually doing some kind of community good as well. So looking into those different associations, different networking groups, um, you know, CNC programmers have some networking groups. There's a great website called meetup.com that has um, different similar like-minded people that will get together at a Starbucks or wherever and just hang out and talk about what they're doing. And I think if you get involved in those, not with the selfish intent to go and say, hey, I'm hiring, do you want to come work for me? But to go and actually contribute to the conversation, it's kind of that passive recruiting. You're going to build your name, you're going to build your brand, and then people eventually get to know who you are and start coming to you. So what you're talking about is um, teaching um, these groups of people um, what manufacturing is all about. So teaching them that, you know, hey, it's not the dirty job that you that you thought it was or that there's a career in this that could bring you to, you know, a six-figure income in the future if you put the time into it. So it's more of an mm-hmm. education. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Tom, take it. I, I, I think Jess brings up some really good points there. Um, and I, I have found that uh, TMA definitely helps broaden the reach of people, you, you know, touch points. Just like when you have active touch points at your customer, I think you have to have active touch points on the job market. And I think that's what Jess is kind of going after. Not only education, uh, but, you know, high schools, um, the, the, the disillusioned uh, 20-year-olds, uh, you have to figure out um, – some way, the baby boomers, you have to figure out some ways uh, in each category to have a touch point. And it, I, I assume that it takes a while to actually see you go from you know that touch point to a viable candidate. So I would say that you have to have the patience to see that through. So if you're going to look for, um, you know, to to bring that awareness to, you know, like that, that low income geography or the veterans or, you know, the people that work at the Jiffy Lube who maybe have mechanical aptitude, you have to have the patience to see that through. It's not going to happen in a month. It, it might take years yeah, um, no to, to get that pipeline filled. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, so what I want to hear is I want to hear a success story. Just basic, I want to hear from everybody that has, if unless you haven't had one recently, but I'd like to hear a success story that you could share with us in the recruitment stage, in the hiring process, or in, even in the retention area that you've won and you can say, yeah, I won this one and it's because we did this. Anyone? Bill? Hand up. Go right ahead. Um, I've done it a couple different ways. I've, I've gone after the 25-year-old and brought him on from working in a auto mechanics facility. He got tired of it. I heard about him. I reached out to him and offered him uh, a job to work on the press brakes and learn all the fabrication equipment over the last two years, and he's having a ball. And now the next step is to get him into the educational cycle to, to bring his educational skill set up. You know, that's one thing, and he's been with us, very loyal employee. The other thing that we're doing, and it's t- we've all touched on it today, is taking that shipper, that packer, that loyal employee that shows you their loyalty to be there on time every day, now approaching them and say, okay, here's some opportunity we have for you. Would you be interested in learning this? And they really were ecstatic that we approached them and said, hey, here's some opportunity for some personal growth. You're young, 25-year-old. What do you want to do? And just have that conversation with them, and they really respond to that. Someone's looking out for them. So it's 
we all have to learn to adapt to those different types of ideas to bring some of these new people into the workforce. Right. Who else? Jess, success story. Let's hear it. We had a young individual um, last year in one of our departments. Um, we're kind of unique in that we design and build all of our own production equipment in-house. So all of the equipment that our machine operators are utilizing is proprietary. We've designed it. We've built it. And our tool room, our CNC guys support that process. So our tool room's smaller in relation to the rest of our company. And we had a young individual who was just um, fantastic in our Wave Springs department, would have been a great leader, was just well on his way, but his interest was really in CNC and programming. And I think it's very easy to kind of get selfish in those situations and try to keep the employee where they're at because you don't want to lose them there. Mm -hmm. But instead, you know, it was amazing. Our leaders on the shop floor were um, so supportive and encouraging and supported the transition, brought him into the tool room. We've sent him to additional training. He's done CNC programming. So we took the loss in one department to retain this fantastic individual who's going to be great somewhere else. And I think that that's something that's easily overlooked. It's kind of that immediate loss that companies will feel like you don't want this employee to go because you're going to lose them there. But the greater good of retaining them somewhere else is going to be a better win. And so just to keep him and to see him engaged and positive, he's going to be amazing in 10 years. And that's awesome. Any success stories, Tom? Yeah. Uh, we had an apprentice come to us, in, uh, oh, I'd say about f- three years ago. Uh, and uh, this gentleman came to us uh, through Erie House. Um, and, uh, and why don't you tell the people that don't know what Erie it's House a, is? It's a nonprofit organization that... Um, Really started with it. Started with uh, uh, introducing German and Swedish uh, immigrants to the trades, and then it went to Italians, and now it's mainly in the Latino community. Um, Here in Chicago, in Chicago, yeah. yeah, and they've been around for well over a hundred years. And we we had a, an apprentice come to us through one of their mentors that said, uh, and we're in contact with them, just like all these touch points. You know, you have Leiden, you have this is just another one. Um, and uh, we had two candidates come from them. One uh, talked to talk, you know, in the beginning did everything just like you were saying earlier, Jason. But when the push came to shove, he just wasn't doing the job. He was uh, he, he wasn't committed. He was verbally committed, but other than that, not really. Uh, this other gentleman uh, really is one of our star employees. Um, um, went through a full apprenticeship, and by his um, third year, he was building dies. So not only did he did he go through full tool room apprenticeship, then he went through CNC. So now he's got both CNC and tool building skills. So uh, and he's in his sixth year now. So uh, and he's moving up the ladder as far as tool building is concerned. Um, so he pretty much decides what he's going to do as far as, you know, if, is he going to CNC machine the tool or if he wants to, he could beg off of that and we'll switch someone else out. You know, we have like a, a rotational concept sometimes uh, when we're building dies. But um, he's a crackerjack is what I would call. Great. Thanks. Mr. Panic, what do you got? Yeah, I think our success revolves around the automation and, and how we're able to take an employee who was on a drill press all day. So imagine just sitting there running a drill press eight hours a day, um, loading into a fixture, and that was his day. But again, he was there on time every day, um, always at his machine. So we said, we need somebody to operate these robots. Do you want to learn? We can progress you as an employee uh, if you're willing to learn learn the robot. So that's what we did. And again, I, I touched on it earlier, rather than him having his hands in the machine with the oil and the chips, he's now running four robots, knows how to offset the robots, knows how to troubleshoot, 
never knew how to sharpen his drills on the drill press, but now he has time as the robots are doing their work. He can sharpen his drills and watch his quality better than we ever have. And so our next goal for him is to eventually move on to a screw machine, which is an even higher level skilled job. But, um, you know, again, it's that commitment to finding somebody who's there on time every day. And then if you have that, uh, usually we can work with you to progress you further. Sure. Great. All right. Jay-Z, what's next? Nothing. That's Nothing. it, man. That's it. That's our hundredth episode. <laughs> We're all done. We're gonna that let was these a people lot of go. Information. <laughs> that was. It's typically not this long, but we thought we'd uh, go a little longer on this one. But uh, you know, as I always say at the end of the show, um, I like to call it the disclaimer. Um, Jason and I don't know it all, although sometimes Jason thinks he does. But at the end of the day. Um, it, it really is truly a, a peer-to-peer sharing platform that we bring to the metalworking nation. Um, we really don't know it all, but we do know a lot of people, and we do have a lot of insight into this industry. And it's just it's a it's an honor to be able to bring all these great intelligent people together and share the good word, share things that are really important to help inspire and equip those manufacturing leaders that are out there that are raggling with raggling with the problem on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and I, I would just say with this 100th episode, what I would encourage everybody is um, don't just listen, you know, write notes down and actually utilize something here. It doesn't mean that you're, I mean, we talked about a whole lot of different things here. We did. And, you know, you're not going to be able to put all of these um, all of these concepts, all of these ideas um, into place right away. But just gra- like listen to the episode again, take take some notes and take one or two things and do those one or two things. Because I mean, the worst thing that you could do is is listen to this episode and you know we're we're going to be doing making chips 150 and you're like I have that same problem, yeah. you know, and I haven't done anything about it. You know what I mean? Go buy a robot and like you know I think probably one of the the first things that you know Brian did is he bought the robot and then he figured out how do I you know how do I get Get this guy to work, you know, so go invest in a robot and, you know, get that drill press operation where, you know, it is a repeated task all the time and, you know, get some training and figure out how to make it work. So actually do something. Don't just, you know, listen to making chips. That would be um, my, my call to action. Yeah. Well, my call to action is they should contact us and let us know how we're doing, right? Yeah. What's our phone number? Uh, 312-725-0245. Nice is that correct? Job. That is correct. Oh, thank you. Oh, I didn't know you were testing me. I thought you were actually <laughs> asking because you wanted to know. <laughs> you always knew the phone number. I never knew. Now, I, now I've um, got it down pat. Yeah, and also, go to our new YouTube page. Subscribe to our Making Chips TV Oh, yeah. Series. You get to see Jim's scraggly face yeah. with, uh, and, with, with the beard. And, yeah. you know, Jason's but, up next. Yeah, I guess I, I, I need to record something. And, you know, I guess what we're trying to do here is we're just trying to put some, you know, actionable um, pointers together. And your first one was about social media, and I think it was great. Um, and, and so, yeah, hopefully we can, we can develop that out. Yeah. And, and also, they can hit us up, Jim, at Making Chips. Ryan at Making Chips or Jason at Making Chips. Or you can, next time we do a live episode like this, you can come and visit us. You bet. Just like everybody else is here. Sounds great. At the end so of the day. So congrats, Jim. Thank you. Congrats. 100 episodes. Yeah. My dad would never believe it. <laughs> he, would, he probably wouldn't say, what, what do you think you're doing? I know. <laughs> With that, bam. bam. All right. Thank you all. This podcast exists to improve the manufacturing industry. 
We want to hear from you, the owners, managers, leaders, and engineers from the metalworking nation. What ideas do you want to share and what keeps you up at night? We want you to take something away from this podcast that you can use to improve your company, your team, and yourself. So let us know what you want to hear, and we'll see you next time on Making Chips. You're going to get champagne at the end. We, yeah, we could serve, we could serve it now if we want to. I'm down. Let's take a break and let's serve some champagne. Let's yeah. do it. Yeah, we can we we deserve to celebrate before we record the the 100th episode.